Good morning. Welcome, welcome to Kahului Baptist Church. We have a lot to cover today, but before we launch into it, uh, man, Keone, I'm going to miss hearing that voice reading the scriptures. For those who don't know, Keone and Sarah, can you just quickly stand up? Briefly stand up. Yeah, I'm going to embarrass you right now. Uh, it is their last Sunday here, and we will be uh, very sad to see you go. We love them greatly. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. Um, and man, they've been such a blessing to our church. Amen. Amen. Yes. Give them. Uh, and so at the end of our service, before our sending song, um, we will have them up and pray over them and let them greet you. What is that? I'm sorry. Yes, and thank you. Uh, we've also had another, another, this is another huge praise. We're not here this morning. You'll understand why. Another baby born. Uh, yes, last night, uh, yesterday, yesterday morning. Um, Jack Nam, Edwin and Meg Nam are in the hospital now. She had their new baby, their third one. So I always joke, our growth plan, our church growth plan is from the inside out, right? So we're, we're just going to have lots of babies and have this whole army uh, of young Christian soldiers who are sold out for Christ, amen? Uh, and, and we will be examples to them by being sold out for Christ now, Amen. Amen. So uh, be praying for Edwin and Meg and maybe shoot them a text or a phone call. There is a meal baby, I believe, set up um, online. If you need more information about that, see Nick Tanaka or myself will help you get that all squared away so that we can provide meals for them, uh, love them to be the hands and feet of Christ. So uh, praise God, and, and we have a few more babies still yet uh, on the way. So awesome, awesome season uh, in the life of our church uh, as we have many young ones. All right. John 11. John 11. Many new things hold out this want for us, right? This, this week something big was released. Anybody know? The iPhone? Seven, seventh iteration of the iPhone, right? Uh, brand new, shiny, and, and we, many of us, back in the day when there was like contracts and like these little flip phones and stuff, uh, every new phone that came out, you were like, yes, because you get a little bit closer to the end of your contract, which is a little bit closer to getting a new phone that works better, which is a little bit closer to getting something better. And is that not the promise that new things hold? They hold out two promises. One, that it's going to be better, it's new upgrade. Two, that it's going to work the way it's supposed to work, right? It's not going to be broken. New house. Sometimes we choose to buy a newer car instead of an older car. Why? Because you just want something that's going to work. Do what it's supposed to do. For those of you who have an Android phone of some sort, you, you probably need some help with this department, a phone that just works, right? Yeah, you guess some of you are getting that. That's the promise of things that are new. When we think about now John 11, the resurrection, what does the promise of the resurrection hold out for us? It holds out the promise of something better, something greater. See, our life as we know it is surrounded by death. We know nothing but death. We truly do. Think about it. Everything dies and everything breaks. Even my son now, he gets broken toys, and, and he, uh, you know, he's asking why about everything. Son, I'm sorry, your toy's broken. Why? Because you broke it. Why? Because everything breaks. Nothing lasts in this world. Put your treasure in heaven. So the promise of the resurrection promises us something new, something better, and something that works the way it was designed to do. You will be able to worship free from the hindrances of sin from the weakness, the frailness of this body. Some of you, I would say maybe many of you this morning when we were reading, when we're reading, your brain was doing something. It was drifting, wasn't it? Some of you are like, oh, I don't know what he's saying. Why do we read this long of passages in church again? I don't, I don't know. What are we talking about? Right? You, your brain was drifting. It does the same thing when you sit down to read your Bible in the mornings for your devotions or in the afternoons or in the evenings. 
Does it not? You start reading, and then all of a sudden, your brain is elsewhere. It's drifting. What is that? That is one of the effects of sin on your mind. And just imagine if you could stay focused on Christ, worshiping Christ, free from the hindrances of the weakness of your body. That's the promise of the resurrection. Would that not be eternal bliss? To behold him and to never grow weary, to never grow tired, and to be satisfied infinitely? Man, it's one of the promises of the resurrection that we will be new and that we will work as God designed us to work, to know him free from the weaknesses and stains of sin. And that's what our passage is all about. Our passage is all about Jesus. I am the resurrection. He is really now developing this theme of resurrection, and we're going to get into a lot here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down the kind of structure of this sermon because it'll be a little bit different from last week, and it'll be different from next week, and it's different from my general pattern. This sermon is loaded full of application because this is just a fantastic passage. This, this is a sermon that is just chocked full of things that, that will hopefully challenge you and encourage you and, and prepare you for this week. It is a sermon full of application. And I'm going to do the meaning, the kind of big meaning, if you will, at the end. We'll work up in increments to what is the main point of this passage. Because I hear a lot of preachers preach on this passage. And a lot of people say a lot of things from this passage. Like, man, Lazarus was dead for four days. And that shows that hope is never gone. And, and that you should trust Christ. And, and all these things. And if, even if you feel dead, it, it's not too late. And, you know, these types of things. And they're very good and true. And we'll talk about those. But they're not the main, the main point. And so we're going to build to the main main point of what John wants his readers, you and I, to see. We're going to build to it. This me at the end. So mostly full of application. Next week's going to be a little bit different. Next week's sermon is going to be almost all theology, all rich, all heavy. So be reading, be prepared, um, and that'll be next week. So this week is going to be uh, hopefully a very beneficial and fruitful time as we see John 11. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you that you give us the freedom here to gather, to worship you as brothers and sisters openly, to, to declare the gospel to one another, the good news that Jesus saves sinners and that any sinner, as vile as they are, if they will come to Christ, the fountain of living waters will be made clean by the blood of the Lamb. Father, may we just bask in those truths that we sing. And I pray, Lord, that there are some Marthas in here, there are some Marys in here this morning asking, where were you? Father, may you show them the glory of Christ. There are some Lazaruses in here this morning, some who are dead, whose sin is foul and stinks, and they're lifeless. Lord, would you give them life, I pray. Would you call them forth this morning? And would Christ, the resurrection and the life, be magnified in Maui? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number one, number one, I believe there's going to be some slides on the screen at some point, um, and hopefully that'll help you follow along. Number one, salve for the sick, or some people say salve, salve if that's how you say it, but it's actually salve, salve for the sick. What is salve? Some of you are like, I don't know, what is, what is a salve? I don't know. Uh, salve is a, is a balm, is an ointment for your skin that is soothing. So this, this passage here, uh, John 11, 1 through 4, is literally salve for the sick. So as you come into John 11, there's, there's three main players. There's, a, there's some other ones uh, that aren't the main focus at this time, but there's three main players that Jesus is interacting with. One is Lazarus. We're introduced to him right in verse 1, and then his sisters, Mary and Martha, and they're going to be our, our kind of main people that are zoomed in on here. And now something happens. Lazarus is sick. He's sick. He becomes very ill, apparently rather unexpectedly and rapidly. It's not like, oh, you know, hey, he, he's always sick. He's been like this. for No, no, no. Apparently, it's very rapidly, very onset suddenly, and very serious because they're sending for Jesus. It's not like, hey, let me just send a, a tweet. Hey, pastor, pray for, for my brother. They, they don't have that stuff. They had to send messengers, and they wouldn't send messengers if he just had a cold. All right? Hey, you know, 
you know, Lazarus, he's, his allergies like Pastor Randy are just flaring up again. Just pray for him. when you No, this is very serious. They had to send a messenger. They had, there was a period of waiting. They were wanting an expectation. And, and so he's very sick, verse 3 tells us. And, and actually, check out how verse 3 describes him. This is important. Verse 3, if you have your Bibles. Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. Now, now, why is that something worth noting? Why is that anywhere near important? Let me give you a reason why. Notice in the beginning it introduces him as, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus. And then verse 2, Mary who anointed the feet of the Lord Jesus with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And then verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, what is awesome about that little passage? Remember I said this is all like mostly application here this morning. Not all. We'll get to the meaning. But what is cool about this is any child of God, if you are a child of God at any time, you can swap your name with that description. Lazarus is ill. He, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You can swap your name there at any time. Lord, Raymond is ill. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lord, my wife, Brittany, is ill. Lord, she whom you love is ill. That is amazing. Because some of you here doubt whether God loves you. You are prone to doubt regularly whether God, because of what you have done or maybe what you are presently engaged in, whether he truly, sincerely, and deeply loves you. And here this passage, and almost just a side note, because every child of God can claim this, says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Man, what a blessing. Salve, salve for the sick. He loves you. It's also important to notice uh, that being a disciple of Christ or being a close friend or somebody who is deeply attached to Christ doesn't exempt you from being very sick and suffering. Right? That's kind of important to think about because sometimes we get it backwards. Like, well, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. How could this happen to me? How could, but please know, Lazarus, it's, very, it's right off the bat. The, he goes to great pains to let us know that he loves Lazarus. And being close to Jesus doesn't mean you get exempt from suffering and sickness. And it also doesn't mean that he doesn't love you when you do. We're often quick to assume that when we're in pain or sick, God doesn't love us. And here, John, the evangelist, tells us many times that he loved Lazarus. The Lord loves you when you get sick. When you're terminally ill or you get that word. I was listening on the radio uh, to some pastor, I don't know who, or it was actually a musician, uh, 102.9. I, I didn't even know who it was. I just caught the tail end of it. Uh, he said, he, he had been told he had cancer, and so they were doing this interview with him, and, and he said, you know what, really, after the point of them telling you you have cancer, it's like all you hear is you're going to die. And he had to wrestle with this coming through of it. Beloved, if you get that word that he is ill, know this, the Lord loves you. It's no sign, it's no sign that he doesn't love you. So we could say, uh, as you'll see on the next slide, we could say the presence of pain, the presence of pain isn't the absence of God's affection. It's important to note, when pain is present, it doesn't mean God's affection is absent. Pain is never without a purpose in the plan of God. He isn't just perpetually reacting. God isn't just a perpetual reactor to the blemishes and mess-ups that humanity creates. He's never just this, like, expert chess player. Like, we kind of picture God like he's just a really good chess player, right? If, if you move your pawn here, he'll move his, his bishop here. If you, you move your knight here, he's going to swoop around behind you. He's already ten steps ahead of you. No, no, no. He's never just reactionary. Everything that happens, every pain and Sorrow and sickness is never without purpose in God's plan. So the question is, what is his purpose in this apparent sudden illness of Lazarus? What is his purpose in your pain and your illness this morning? Jesus says in verse 4, 
He tells us what the purpose is. Similar to chapter 9, Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What is the illness for? It's for the glory of God. Why? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, how does it lead to the glory of God? We're about to see that more fully, but suffice it to say for now, another thing we see is that for those whom the Lord loves, he says, this illness does not lead to death. For those whom the Lord loves, no illness leads to death anymore. Suffice it to say for now, if, you, if you're like I described earlier, you can switch your name. He whom the Lord loves, for followers of Christ, no illness leads to death anymore. I'm going to unpack that more fully. And so are these twin truths, one, that God loves you, and two, that no illness will lead to death anymore, can these things, are these not salve for your soul? Do they not soothe you when that news comes? Do they not comfort you? And on a side note, it also, this passage also tells us, this one little verse, this illness does not lead to death, this one little verse tells us that we need to create a new compartment in our brains. We need a compartment for sickness that leads to the glory of God. We often don't have that. We we often pray for health, and that's good, and we should, but we need a compartment for a sickness, an illness, even a terminal illness that comes about for the glory of God. That is a biblical category. There's so much prosperity theology and flimsy beliefs and teaching in the churches today that teaches, oh, unless you're good, God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise and all of these things, and it's just not biblical. It doesn't reflect the full teachings of Scripture, and it doesn't deal with these realities of life that sometimes, sometimes a prayer isn't granted. We all know this. Sometimes we get sick, and that prayer for healing is no. And that theology will not sustain you in that time. You need a teaching with a category that has sickness for the glory of God, that the Son may be glorified through it. I want you to hold me to the fire on this, beloved. When that day comes and Pastor Randy is weak, and I should get sick with some sort of terminal illness. I want you to hold my, don't comfort me with, oh, Pastor Randy, you're going to get better. I'm going I'm to speak this word over. No, don't comfort me with that. Comfort me with, Pastor Randy, this is for the glory of God. Amen. Suffer well. Let me pray for you. Let me bear this burden. It hurts, but it is for the glory of God. Comfort me with that. I don't need that flimsy theology, and at the same time, pray for my healing, please. Pray for my healing adamantly, because God hears our prayers. It's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This should be your chief goal in all of your trials, right? Whatever your illness is, whatever your health is, whatever you're going through, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Is that your goal this morning? That is salve for the soul. Number two, when love lingers. Number two, when love lingers. So again, we see this love of Jesus emphasized for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It tells us, verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Do you see that being repeated? Why does he repeat this? Because what's about to happen could cause you, could cause them, could cause anybody to question whether he really loved them. It often leads us to doubt as well. What's about to happen? What's about to happen is really just shocking. What the Bible says, some translations have softened, and I think probably mistranslated it. Shocking. Reminds me of the Forrest Gump quote, right? Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Jesus can sometimes be like that box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, but it will always be satisfying. And this passage here is shocking. Jesus loves them. 
Now, it would do us well to just take note that he loves them with a unique, special love that isn't necessarily, necessarily shared with everyone else or else the sentence falls flat. Because you could say, well, I mean, John 3.16, doesn't God so love the world? I mean, doesn't he love the Pharisees? Doesn't he love uh, the people who are about to kill him? And the answer to that is yes and yes. Does that mean he doesn't have this special love for, for Mary and Martha and Lazarus as his dear friends and, and followers and his ones whom he tenderly cares for? No, he has a special love for them or else the sentence doesn't make sense. It falls flat, and we'll talk more about that next week, but I just want you to note that now, right? I've been giving you things to, to drop in your bank, dots, because we're going to connect those dots uh, and keep connecting them uh, in the weeks to come. So he loves them uniquely and specially. Now, what's it say then? So verse 5 and 6, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, next verse, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything he was doing and immediately went as fast as he can. Wait, some of you guys are looking up. Is that, that's not what's in your Bible? That's, that's what's in, no. That's what we expect to be in the Bible. That's what we want to be in the Bible. That's what we would want. If our loved one's sick, but no, Jesus surprises us. What does it say? So, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How many days? Two days. Come on, Jesus. Come on, good shepherd. You're breaking every pastoral rule of the book. Every pastor knows pastoral 101. Your church member dies, you drop everything, and you go. That's just good shepherding. Jesus, what are you doing? He stays two days longer. So what do we learn about God from this? What do we learn about God from this? Many have said, and I echo and I believe it is true, that God's delays are not his denials. That's one thing we learn. Just because he delays an answer to prayer doesn't mean he denies that answer to prayer. So if you find this morning, just like they were about to find, that you have a delayed answer to prayer request, that you are not seeing something happening right away as you would like it to be, know this, that it is for the purpose of the glory of God and that your faith might be strengthened, that you might draw, be drawn into deeper dependence on Christ, deeper fellowship with him, a deeper trust and who he is, it would be a grave mistake, a mistake of massive proportions to think when he feels absent, when he feels absent or withdrawn, that he doesn't love you dearly. That would be a grave mistake to think, that when God feels cold or distant, that, he does, that it means he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he doesn't hear you. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. I say with the psalmist, wait on the Lord. Wait, I say, on the Lord. He will not be silent. And if you believe, you will see the glory of God. You will see it. So when Jesus hears about his serious sickness of his beloved friend Lazarus, he stays two days longer, and what happens? Lazarus dies. He lets his friend die. What type of love is this? Who of you would do that? What type of love is this? We need another category. This is a love that is radically God-centered. This is a love that is radically God-centered. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means if letting Lazarus die and letting Martha and Mary go through all the accompanying pain that comes with that, if letting all that happens means that they will see a better vision of the glory of God and others around them will believe, then so be it. That's what that means. Why? Because Jesus' life and our lives should be what? For the purpose of glorifying God. Is this how you see life? a radical way of seeing trials. Is this how you see life? If your pain 
And the way you respond to others or the way you respond to it testifies to the power and glory of God such that others see and believe. Are you willing to say, not my will, but yours be done? Not my will, but yours be done. Many times our prayers are creature-focused on us, on our immediate wants and needs, instead of on what most glorifies God. Now, we'll often, I do this too, we'll often say it as an afterthought, Lord, but, it, but if it's your will, and instead of the meat of the prayer, let this, Lord, whatever is for your glory, I don't know if, if this is for your glory, but let me be like Paul, that whether by life or by death, that I would magnify Christ. So Jesus stays two days longer. He stays two days longer for the glory of God. That's Jesus. But he doesn't delay forever. I love this passage in Isaiah 49, 15. It should be up here. Isaiah 49, 15. Man, this is just a beautiful description. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. What a beautiful passage. Even if he delays, he won't forget. You think of my son, my baby son, my, my boy. He's eight weeks, a nursing child. Can, can a mother forget him? He says, even those may, in the worst case circumstance, forget. But Jesus says, I, I will never, God, I will never forget you. I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. And so Jesus remembers. He goes in his compassion and confident in the Father's timing. That's what that next few verses about, walking in the day versus walking in the night. We don't have time for that. That's really, really awesome stuff, though. But we're going to pass over that just to keep moving along. So to the surprise of the 12, Jesus says, let's go to Judea. Let's go. And they're like, what, what, wait, he, weren't they about to kill you? I mean, if we go back, you, you understand if you go, we're going to go. And if, if, if you go and we go, then we're all going to die. And then Thomas, you know, is like, let us go die with him. Yeah, Thomas. So uh, Thomas, even though he had that kind of doubting thing at the end, he's to be commended. He's ready to roll. So they're surprised. They go uh, after some confusion. He tells them what happened. Lazarus has died. They misunderstand him. Lazarus is sleeping. He's, he, well, if he's asleep, Lord, and, and he's going to wake up, we don't have to go to Jerusalem. He's going to wake up soon. It's okay. He'll get better. No. He, okay, guys. Morons, pay attention. He's dead. That's what I meant. He's dead. Oh, okay. Okay, I guess we'll go then. And then he says this. This is another stark, startling statement, verse 14 and 15. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. It's another clue as to what's about to happen and the purpose as to why he did things the way he did. I'm glad that I wasn't there so that for your sake, so that you can see and may believe. Wait, but these, are, these people already believe in him. They're already following him. Oh, you see, you think you believe in Jesus now, but all of us have, have a need to press on into greater and greater vision and knowledge of who Christ is. We never know Christ, and when we think we know him, we, we just find out, whoa, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways and my thoughts, your thoughts and my thoughts, says the Lord. So he says, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe and so they go, which brings us to the third point. Now and later. Some of you guys love these candies, right? Now and laters. They're good. They're hard now and soft later. They're just juicy and good. They're, they're, they're delicious. Now and later. That's 17 through 27. Now, by the time Jesus arrives, it tells us that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Four days. Way to be late. Maui time, Jesus is on. Four days. And the scene that we come into is a scene of mourning. Many cultures and, and different traditions throughout the world have, have, you know, a period of mourning. Some it's a week, some it's 90 days, some it's longer. And, and throughout this time, there's, there's different things they do for mourning. And now Jesus is here on day four, and this is no different. They're mourning, they're weeping, there's, there's clothes of grief on Death was unexpected. It's her brother. The pain is 
still very real and fresh and sharp. Martha hears Jesus is coming and gets up to go to see him. The first thing out of her mouth is exactly what you would expect to hear from somebody who's hurting. It'll be up here on your screen too. Martha said to Jesus, 1121, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Ouch. First thing out of her mouth. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's another way of saying that? Where were you, God? I sent for you. You didn't come. Where were you? I can't help but think that some of you have wondered that. Can we get real for a second? You're like, I thought we were real already, Pastor. We'll get more real. Some of you had an abusive childhood. You wondered that very question, where were you, God? Some of you had a death, a very unexpected death, maybe of somebody very close to you. You asked the question, where were you? Some of you now are in some sort of pain, and you're asking that question, where were you? If you really loved me, you would have been here sooner. If you really loved me, this wouldn't have happened. And now it's too late. It's real, right? How do I know it's real? Because I have people say that to me many times. She catches herself. She catches herself, though. Martha knows better. She doesn't go that far. Because she catches herself, and what does she say? She gives a Sunday school answer. That's what she gives. Had you been here, my brother would not have died. Oh, wait, wait, wait. But even now I know that you can ask God, and whatever you ask from him, he'll give you. It's a Sunday school answer. I don't think she really means that in her soul. I don't think she really believes that. I think she's saying what she knows she's supposed to say in the midst of hurting. We do this too, right? We all do this. We struggle, we have doubts, we, we sometimes even lay accusations, but we know our mind is, is also wrestling with, I know, I know this, but, but we don't feel it. We don't sense it deep down such that it's giving us confidence. So Jesus begins to draw her out. That's what Jesus does, right? He does this with the woman at the well. He does this with many others. He starts to draw her out. He starts to focus her attention or refocus her attention See, she's already focused on him if you had been here. So that's good. Good. She's focused on him. But he's got to retweak it because she's focused on him more succinctly on what he didn't do. He's going to refocus her onto what he is doing, what he's going to do, but more importantly, on who he is. He's going to resharpen her focus. See, the most important thing for Martha is not what he didn't do for her. The most important thing is who is Jesus. The most important thing she can do is to focus who is Jesus. And this is us so many times. We get focused on what God didn't do for me instead of what he is doing, and more importantly, who he is while he's doing it. See, if you, why is that important? Because if you know him, if you see who he is, then you know his heart, and you can better understand his actions. So he's going to refocus her on, yes, the promises of God, but more importantly, the person that is standing right in front of her. So she replies to his question, or to his statement, your brother will rise again. She says, I know that he will rise again. I know that he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. So she goes to, to the, whew, way, way to the last day, to that final promise. Yeah, I mean, I know there's going to be a general resurrection, and, and he'll rise in, but it, it hurts now. His response is awesome. Jesus said to her, eleven twenty-five to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What is he saying? In essence, Martha, it's not just later that Lazarus will rise. It's now. 
It's not just at some point in the future, it's now. Why? Because it's not just that you're looking forward to this resurrection that will come one day. It's I am the resurrection and I am here today and whoever believes in me will never die. Lazarus isn't dead and even if he looks dead, yet shall he live and never die. It's not just later, Martha. It's both now and later. And see, what Martha had let happen, and we let this all, all of us have this temptation in times of pain, is her pain skewed her vision of God. Her, vein, her pain was skewing it. She was looking with not correct lenses. And Jesus is refocusing her vision. And as she's looking at God with this skewed vision, she's cutting off the very comfort she needs desperately. She's pushing away the very hope that is available right in front of her. Her I am, how she's defining herself, I am in pain, I am in grief, I am hurting, I am sorrowful, I am this, is colliding with his I am, which is I am the resurrection and the life. Now, some of you may be here still, and you're similar, kind of like Martha. I said there's a lot of Marthas and a lot of Marys in here. And maybe you're still trying to comfort yourself with that promise of later. Yeah, I know, later. But where was God now? I need him now. Things will be okay. Yes, this is true. But Jesus' word for you is today, the same as it was for her then. It's not just later, it is now. Jesus is the resurrection now. He offers you resurrection and life now. And if you will believe in him perfectly, you will be there later. That came out wrong. If you believe in him now, you will be perfect later. So it's time to let go of your pain you've been carrying, that where were you, God? Some of you haven't let that go. You might have not been verbalizing it, but it's still there. It's time to let it go, that you've been carrying that grief, your guilt, your anger, your pain. It's time to look to Jesus, who stands before you now in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life, and let him take that burden today. Now, if he is the resurrection and the life, that leads us to point four. How does he demonstrate that promise? How does he go, or how do they go from grief to glory? How do they go from grief to glory? Well, he has this conversation with Martha, and, and then that kind of works out. She, she believes. She's refocused. He goes to Mary, and the first things out of her mouth were, you guessed it, the same thing. Where were you? Had you been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus does something different here. It's actually a beautiful passage. We don't have a ton of time to stay here. So it's one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible. Jesus comes. He sees Mary weeping. Not just crying, right? Not just like tears. She was weeping over her brother. He sees the Jews surrounding her weeping. And it says that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled in spirit. And then you have that shortest and a very profound verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He wept. Can you imagine? The Word made flesh, dwelt among us, weeping. This shows his humanity. Yes, was he God? Yes. Was he man? Yes. Was he half God, half man? No, he is 100% God, 100% man. He is the God-man. Divinity and humanity merge together for all eternity. And he weeps. This expression, Jesus wept, is deeply moved and troubled in spirit, has a tinge of anger to it as well, a tinge of frustration to it. Not just sorrow, but there's, there's a little bit of anger in there. Before we talk about why that is, I just want to note here real fast, Jesus is tough. We've seen him tough. He's calling Pharisees, children of the devil, flips over tables, does stuff like that. He's also tender. He's able to weep. He's able to preach truth and cry with the grieving. Men, we need to learn to take our cues from Jesus, I think. 
right? Sometimes we're be a man, right? Mulan, be a man, right? You're going to be tough. You don't cry. Let's get down to business. Sometimes we can be harsh or insensitive with our wives or others when they're crying. I mean, wouldn't we, what would we say? What are you crying for? Seriously? Relax. I told you if you believe you would see a vision of glory, I'm about to raise him from the dead. Just take a chill pill. Right? That's That's the way sometimes we can be, men. We need to learn to weep with Jesus. He's the manliest man who ever lived. Even when he knows he's about to do a miraculous work that they have never seen and has never been done the way he's about to do it, he still stops, enters their pain, and weeps. We need to take our cues from him. And here he demonstrates that it is okay and right to weep at the loss of a loved one. It is okay and it is right to weep over these tragedies like 29 who die in New Jersey last night. 25 or however many children were killed in the massacre in Connecticut of an elementary school. It is okay and right to weep when these things happen even if you know that God has a purpose and will be glorified in it. See, we have to walk these, these kind of tight ropes because we can swing and say, well, well, if it's going to be good in the end, then why be sorrowful? Or if we're just, I just don't see how any sorrow, any good's going to come from this, and so we're just so sorrowful without hope. No, 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 no. Yes, God has a purpose in it. Yes, he will be glorified. And yes, we weep. And this is exactly, I think, what moved him to weep. What made him uh, with this tinge of being greatly moved and troubled. Why? Because he's seeing these people whom he loves. He's here, the Word incarnate, looking at the creation that he made, that he spoke into existence, and he sees the effects of sin on these people. He sees death that was never a part of the original design of creation, and he's not just seeing that, but he's also seeing the pain he's about to undergo, that this event is the very catalyst for his crucifixion, and he sees all of that and what he's going to have to do to undo the pain of death, and he's full, and he just weeps. It's not the way it was supposed to be. The Bible calls death our enemy. Our enemy. Why? Because it separates us. That's what death means. It's a separation. It separates us from everything that's dear to us, most importantly, God. So Jesus sees this separation and weeps. Now, We'll go ahead and come and move to the next major portion, 38 to 44. Essentially, Jesus now comes after weeping. He asks where they've made him, where they've laid him. He comes to the tomb. He commands the stone to be rolled away. After four days, your objection will be the same as Martha's. Lord, it's been four days. It stinks. The odor will be foul by now. Don't, don't. Don't do this. Don't subject me to this, please. This, this is foul. Anybody who's ever been around a body for that long, it is a smell that doesn't go away after a while. But yet he insists, and they move it. And then he prays, Father, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And it says, and this will be up on the screen, when he said these things, this is amazing, this is kind of the climax here. The stones roll away. He's been dead four days. People are watching. What's happening? Why is he doing this? He prays. What? And then it says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. I just imagine that just pierced the silence. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with cloths. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
It's amazing. It's amazing. St. Augustine said he had to say Lazarus because if he had said just come out, then everybody in the tombs would have just come out of their grave. He had to say Lazarus, come out. Augustine, he has a sense of humor. So what does it all mean now? So it's been said. What does it all mean? How do we tie it all together with Jesus being the resurrection and the life, not just now but later? How does it tie in with all of John that we've seen? This is the seventh miracle. This is his seventh sign that he records for us in his fifth I am statement. Or how does this tie in with the prologue, John chapter 1? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. How does it all kind of fit together, or more importantly, with the whole Bible? All right, let's see if we can do this. This is the big picture, the tie-in to the main point of this chapter. All the application things that I've mentioned so far will be anchored in this. What is John's main point? We have to go back to Genesis to see this. You're like, oh, man, I thought we were almost done, and we're going back to Genesis. We mention Genesis a lot because it's important. We have to go back to the beginning to get John's main point. What's his main point from the beginning? See, you remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus tells Adam and Eve, you may eat of every tree in the garden except for this one. And what do they do? They eat of that one. And he, he gave them a curse, and he, he told them, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or in Hebrews, uh, you could translate it, in dying, you shall surely die. What's the point? Don't do it because you're going to die. And they eat of it, and immediately they died spiritually, and then physically their bodies immediately began to decay. There's an immediate separation as shown by their hiding in the bushes, covering themselves with leaves, being kicked out of the garden. Death had its effects immediately, and they died, and their children died. And, their ch- and we saw that all the genealogies end with, they lived however many years, and they died all the way from Genesis to the rest of the Old Testament, and they died, and they died, and they died. And now, for the first time since Genesis 3, it is broken, and they died, and they died, and they will never die. They lived. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Never again do men have to be separated from God. Finally, the repetition of, and they died, was interrupted and soon to be broken forever. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now this morning, I want to I start to close and wrap it up with a call to you, just as Jesus did to them. Now, some of you, I said, are Martha's, some are Mary's. We're going to turn to that. Some of you in here are Lazarus's this morning. You are, just as he was bound with burial claws when he came out, uh, he was there. Some of you are bound in your rebellion and your sin. You couldn't break free if you wanted to. Some of you, he stunk after four days. You have been stinking in your sin and odor of your rebellion for years. And you are dead spiritually. You are lifeless and you know it. You wonder, maybe your family wonders, if there's any hope for you. Is there any hope for me? Can I ever live spiritually before God? Can I ever have joy because of my past, because of what I've done? To you, I say this. If you believe, you will see. You will see the glory of God. If you believe, he's calling you this morning. He stands before you. Do you hear his voice? Come out. Come out from that darkness today and live and never die again. Be free. Will you come? Will you come or will you choose to stay in? Come or else you may find that it is too late when you desire to. When Jesus calls, come. Now, to the believer this morning, to my Marys and Marthas in here, as I said earlier, it's time to let go of your burden that you've been carrying. Where were you, God? It's time to let it go. You know Jesus. You know him. You follow him. But you've let your suffering skew your vision of Christ. I want to encourage you, let the anger, 
the bitterness, the grief, the sorrow. Look to him. He stands before you. He is the resurrection and the life. Let it go this morning. He loves you. He invites you back to him. His delay was not a denial. Refocus your vision on who Jesus is. And last, I do think Lazarus has a lesson for us as well, us believers. What is the lesson? When Jesus raised him from the dead, he came out with what on? burial clothes. He was still bound in these linens and these, they stunk and, and, and he said, take them off. So you have Lazarus who now has life, but yet he's still bound in the clothes of his death. What's the lesson for us here? If you're here, if you're a Christian, maybe you're outside the fellowship of the church, or maybe you are in the fellowship of the church, but you've isolated yourself from the body for various reasons. Know this, you may have life on the inside, like Lazarus, you might be walking around with, bound with your clothes from your own life, and you need other believers to help you take them off. You do. You need the body to help you take them off. Colossians uses the phrase, put off the old man, put on the new man. Many believers, I fear, are like Lazarus, unsuccessfully walking around by themselves. I got this. I can take off these grave clothes. I can, I can get this. I can unbind myself. And unsuccessfully, they walk enslaved for years. You need the body of Christ. You need to come and be restored. Let us help you bear your burdens. Let us help you take off the old man and put on the new and walk in newness of life together to bear your burdens. Join a small group. We have four of them, three on Tuesdays, one on Wednesday. Join a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night study. Come together to be known and to be transparent and be connected. Don't be by yourself with that new life wearing old, dead, stinking clothes. Christ calls you to life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the question for all of us this morning is the same then. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the comfort that this passage brings our souls. Thank you that uh, in your infinite love and mercy, you know what is best for us, that sometimes your love lingers, but it never is an absence of your affections. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Christ who is the resurrection now and later. And Lord, we thank you for your mighty power that raises the dead. So Lord, I pray that you would do all these things that we have asked. Lord, help us to let go of our burdens, our griefs, our pain and to look to Jesus for life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now is a time of invitation. I'd invite you, if you need prayer for anything, uh, or if you need life now to come and pray, I'll be in this room to my right and your left. Please come and let me pray with you. God bless.